0: Good morning, beautiful spring morning here in May. Lord has given us uh, plenty of rain that uh, we know that we'll be needing somewhere along the line. He has it in perfect uh, timing, doesn't he? (laughs) I think at the same time, we probably want to, as a church, be be praying for all the people in, in Tennessee and Nashville and all the flooding that has happened there. I've talked to several people that are in uh, companies, a lot of our Christian companies, music and Bible companies and such and book companies are in Nashville. And some of them have been driven out of their homes, four feet of water in their house, and some pretty pretty horrible stories. I haven't heard that much about it in the news, but uh, it's it's a catastrophe, they say, that seems equal to... uh, Hurricane Katrina, I'm sure that's what it sounds like to them, so anyway, keep them in mind. Well, we are in a new chapter, chapter 34 today, and I think it's rather remarkable because we've come to the part that I think is one of the most glorious in, in all the Bible. It's about where Moses says, show me your glory, which we looked at last week, and now God is going to do that. Uh, it's a great glimpse of the glory of God. We're, are you guys ready to get a, a glimpse of God's glory today? Amen. I'm not kidding you. Are you ready? Amen. Well, this is, this is quite a text here that we have and that God has given us. God's nature is really described very clearly in, uh, in this section. And probably as well as or maybe better than any other place in the Bible although there are other places in the Bible that will use some of the same terms. Moses has asked God to show His glory. God actually agreed with that. Uh, Only it's in His own terms and not maybe exactly the way Moses is thinking. Who knows what Moses is thinking? But God said His goodness would pass before Moses. As he stated in verse 19, I'll make all of my goodness pass before you and I'll proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And he does. After what the uh, Israelites had done, and he says, I'm going to show you all my goodness. You want to see it? I'm going to show you my goodness. Now, this is where we're at now as uh, there's going to be a revealing. Moses is actually going to hear more than he's really going to see He's going to hear the preacher of the universe preach about himself. That's why we give the title, The Lord Proclaims Himself. You know, there are preachers, and then there is the preacher. That's what we're going to look at today as he preaches about himself. And he's going to proclaim his name, his character, his very justice, as he shows the backside of his glory. So Moses actually needed some reinforcement. And and he needed a renewal of the covenant. Remember, he broke the tablets. And this whole covenant has to be renewed. He's representing the people. They had rebelled uh, before God and their idolatry. But God's grace is a shining theme throughout this whole book, isn't it? and here it is again in this whole section this is what we're really looking at if you know we know that he could have destroyed that whole nation in, in a split second but because of the mediatorship of uh, Moses God does not do that he restrained his wrath even though he is a God of wrath also so by seeing his mercy his compassion his grace, His long-suffering, all of those elements that are involved that He's going to be talking about today, we get to the very essence of the heart of God. That's really what Moses needed to see. That's what we need to see. The security of the people is not found in themselves, is it? I haven't done too good of a job. The security is always in God. It's always in Him. He's the very basis of of everything that we have and that we are. He is the basis of our blessings. All the promises that we have, He is the basis of that and He's the one that acts upon that. What a truly great God we have who has manifested Himself to Moses and also to us. What I'm going to do, there are only nine verses here, I'm going to ask you to stand and let's read this precious text and let's let God speak to us today. Does this sound good? And the Lord said to Moses, cut two tablets of stone like the first ones, and I will write on these tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. So be ready in the morning. And come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself to me there on the top of the mountain. And no man shall come up with you and let no man to be seen throughout all the mountain. Let neither flocks nor herds feed before that mountain. So he cut two tablets of stone like the first ones. Then Moses rose early in the morning, went up Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him. And he took in his hand the two tablets of stone. Now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. By no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So Moses made haste and bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. Then he said, If now I have found grace in your sight, O Lord, let my Lord, I pray, go among us, even though we are a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us as Your inheritance. Let's pray. Father, as we go into this Word today, may we get a glimpse of Your glory. Get a glimpse like Moses did of seeing Your inner nature and understand how gracious You are to us. Let Your Holy Spirit lead us into knowing You. In Jesus' name, Amen. Okay. See what I mean? This is a great text. This is a great text. The only thing is, you've got an inferior preacher here today, standing here doing this. <laughs> the preacher is is God here, but let's see if he can, if he will speak to us here. Now, when the people saw. Uh, uh, that well, they were in idolatry, and they were in sin, and of course, Moses knew that when they recognized fully what they were doing, even though they they did now they they saw the consequences of it, and then they saw that Moses threw down the tablets and broke them. It definitely made a point to them that the covenant is done it 's broken The covenant has been broken he 's disgusted with the people. So the covenant being broken had to terrify them when he did that. And Moses shows up. Moses is now going to have to cut out the stone that God would write on. God had written on the other ones before but he had prepared those. This time Moses has to cut them out. says in verse 1 And the Lord said to Moses Cut two tablets of stone like the first ones. They're not prepared. You'll have to prepare them then I want you to bring them up here and I'll write on those again. Boy, you know what? The law is not only the law that shows us our sin, but you know, I see grace in God's law. Do you ever see grace in God's law? I mean, for one thing, it's so gracious that it drove us to Christ because we saw our sin. That's what the law does. It revealed that. But in, in that, you see such, gracious, such a gracious God. You know, this is, this is about God. So, anyway, and they get it again from Him. What would they have been like if they would not had the law, not had the covenant? Well, there has to be a renewal of the covenant. So God tells Moses to prepare to renew this covenant again. We're going to do it again. We're going to reinstate the people into this covenant, even with all their great sin. That's how far we've come. Moses had pled with God, and now here God is going to renew the covenant, going to show the very glory to Moses. Isn't it amazing that God would be willing to do this? Can can you imagine? I mean, how far can you go, God? I mean, this they did the, the ultimate act. This is certainly an act of grace. So, he tells Moses, come up to Mount Sinai. Verse 2. Present yourself to me there on the top of the mountain. So Moses is going to attend to this. going to go to the top. Nobody is going to go up with him. They're not even going to go up so far up the mountain like they did before. This time he said, nobody. I don't want anybody with you at all. I don't want any animals at that mountain. Just like before when he had given the, the, the Ten Commandments. I think this is definitely a distancing himself from the people again. They need to recognize that He is holy and they are not. They're sinful. They need to know that. So, they can't even get close to the vicinity there. And what Moses is doing is that he's getting the directions from God and he's doing exactly what God tells him. The people didn't do that, did they? That's the whole point. Obey, right? Trust and obey as we sing that song. Well, that's what Moses is doing here. So he, uh, he tells Moses what to do. Uh, Moses um, says in verse 4, cut two tablets of stone like the first ones. Then Moses rose early in the morning, went up Mount Sinai, as the Lord did what? Commanded him. He did exactly what God said. He did it. And so he's attending to those, those directions. His obedience is definitely contrasted with the people. And this is a a very much of a covenant approach to God again. And so God makes sure that He does it His way. And you have to be very careful when you approach God. And respectful. So God is to be approached according to the very command. And fellowship with Him is um, very important for Moses and, and the people. Do you see some things in this section that reminds you of the first time that he went up there. When they first came to Mount Sinai, there were a lot of similar instructions. And, and what this is is a reestablishment of the covenant. They had established before. They broke it. And he reestablishes again. And in chapter 19 and 20, at Mount Sinai, we, uh, we can compare with what happened there. There were stone tablets In in the section where Moses went up there with God, right? There was a proclamation of the Lord's name. Just like here. We see a covenant language just all over the place. I mean, covenant is stamped everywhere. The text in both of the tablets, both times, were written by the finger of God. He wrote it. Can you imagine? God wrote that. It wasn't man writing at that time. You know, we have the Bible, and we know that man actually pinned that down. Even though uh, those prophets and Moses and other people wrote it down, it was uh, inspired by God's spirit. We know that, but He used their uh, personalities, and He used their—I guess you could say—in modern-day terms, the pen. <laughs> but um, so this is uh, this is what's happening. Moses is to meet God in the morning. That sounds familiar. He is to go up and God is to come down like before. He's descending as Moses goes up. The mountain is off limits for all. As he was giving the Ten Commandments, they were not to get close or touch that mountain. So covenant language is uh, what is key is here. And... Covenant language is binding God in His commitment to these people. He is bound by that because He's making this covenant. The covenant is being renewed. So now we get to the glorious section. Verses 5-7. through This is the Lord passing before Moses. Here it is. God has already told him He will do this. Now it's ready to happen. And he says, now the Lord descended in the cloud. Here he comes. And he stood with him there. He stood there with Moses. Now the name of the Lord, he says, now the Lord descended and, he, and, then, and, the, and the Lord passed before him. And you keep thinking about the name of the Lord. is about what he is and what he does. There are a lot of names for God in the Bible. Hundreds of them. And they explain who He is and what He does, what His nature is about and what His actions are. It says here He descended, He condescended so that Moses could be communicated with, that they could actually communicate. Go to Psalm 113, verse 6. Talking about God. In verse 5 it says, well, look at verse 4. The Lord is high above all nations, His glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God who dwells on high? And here we go. Who humbles Himself to behold the things that are in the heavens and on the earth. It's amazing. Here's this God who nobody can even explain you know, His glory and what He's about. Who, who is like Him? Of course nobody. He dwells on high, but yet he comes down. He humbles himself to behold the things that are here, around us, in the sky and on the earth. He cares about us. He condescended down to Moses' level. Of course, that's what Christ did, didn't he? He got down on our level and became man. So he descended in the cloud, it says here. Uh, and stood with Him there. The cloud would be something like that uh, cloud that we think of, cloud by day, fire by night. That's giving something a little bit visible to them that they know that He's there. Uh, The pillar of cloud will go before Israel as they move on. But there He is. He's right there with Moses as He's been there before. In a sense, I guess you could say Moses is witnessing a theophany here. Said, "Show me your glory." He's going to show the backside of his glory, and this is appearance of God. How many people have seen this? What an incredible sight that he had. Moses had said, "What? Show me your glory." God now does that. He shows his goodness, and this will clarify to Moses that God is going to do what he said he's going to do. Moses said that. If you go back to verse 19 again, I will make all my goodness pass before you. My well-being. Everything. All that He is. Now, it says here He proclaimed the name of the Lord. He preached the name of the Lord. That's what His message was. The name of the Lord. (laughs) Can you imagine Moses, only one in the audience here, taking in this message message of the ages the Lord preached his name to him the Lord preached the self-existent one the I am right way back to Exodus 3 and the name is to be elaborated on on being combined with his attributes as, as we'll see in verse 6 and 7 you take Yahweh and you add to it the other names of who he is and his characteristics or nature, the name at the burning bush was, I am that I am. That's enough said right there, isn't it? That's amazing that he'd do that. But now what he does is he makes himself known in the glory of his goodness and grace. Moses had to be very fearful when he first saw him at the burning bush and uh, that's all he knows I am that I am I'm the self-existent one and now I am that one full of grace goodness and all those God's preaching about God (laughs) and he's telling what he is like can you think of any other better message to give it's all about God we could sit here and make ourselves feel real good have a feel-good message, right? A feel-good sermon. We could do that. We could preach that. But we are people in the need of God. We are people that need God. And this is, this is what Moses needed to see. Moses uh, is going to see this glory, what he's like, who he is. And and this name Lord and the Lord passed for him. In, look at this, the Lord, the Lord God, Yahweh, Yahweh. L. I think he's emphasizing something here, right? Get my name. I'm a personal God. I'm a covenant God. God is faithful to His people when He makes a covenant, and that rings a bell when He says that name, Lord. Lord. So he's passing by. And he's preaching this. He's proclaiming the very character. His very heart is what God is showing. This is the description of God's character. The moral demands of God are rooted in His very nature. We can preach all we want. Be good. Do this. Do that. Don't do that. We can do that. The only thing is, is if we don't get to the very nature of God, all that is is some law before us that we will eventually break. We are covenant breakers. And that's sad. I'm not saying that's what we are to be. We are to be conforming to the very person of Christ. Because we have all the power to do that. As we read that confession earlier this morning, because the Holy Spirit has been put in us, we can now start doing the things that God does. It's very possible. Theoretically, We should never sin. The only thing is, we don't preach perfectionism here because we're still in the flesh and we battle and we will lose battles. But, theoretically, we have everything that we need to live a godly life. The Holy Spirit lives right here. We are to be directed by Him. So, the covenant God here is saying, Hey, my laws—they're according to my nature. That's what they're about. And Moses bows to the ground here. Moses is, is bowing. I, I think when you when you think about that, and I, I skip way ahead there, but I'm just saying, when he, whenever he's seeing what he's seeing, and even more than seeing, he is hearing. In Romans, it says, "Faith comes by hearing." and hearing by the Word of God. Right? So, nothing wrong with seeing. He's seeing something, but even more important, he is hearing the Word of God. And that is what needs to be done. God preached who He was.
1: The attributes
0: are how we truly see God. I don't know what all Moses saw. It must have been just fantastic. Something that he could not have ever forgotten. But this message, he never forgot for sure too. If it were only God's righteousness and justice that were His attributes, the children of Israel would have already been gone. They would have been gone before Moses even knew what they were doing. The very moment they sinned, God could have just obliterated this didn't happen he is a just God he is a righteous God and he could have done that and been perfectly just in doing it he didn't because he has other attributes that he wants to put on display too those being what we look at today the terms of the covenant are reflecting his very own character when you look at the law you can see God's nature in that law. We know we're not saved by the law. We're saved by God's grace. But whenever He writes that law on our hearts, we have such a desire now to follow what He says. So we are to be rooted in who He is. We don't have to be rooted in following some kind of man-made law that that we come up with, but we're rooted in the very nature of God, the very heart of God. That's where it's rooted at, in a very dramatic way. we We, we We see God standing next to Moses here, as it says. And Moses is not telling us what God looked like. Did you notice something was missing here? You would think He would have come out with some great flowery descriptions I mean uh, just powerful descriptions of the, how God looked like I mean isn't that what you're waiting for and it says show me your glory and God says I'll make all my goodness pass before you and Moses when he writes it down here later on for us to read here in Exodus chapter 34 which they didn't have chapters <laughs> chapter division Moses is not saying what he looked like he's telling us what he was did you notice that? You keep looking and say, well, Yeah, yeah, what did he look like? What did that glory look like? Well, here it is. Mercy, gracious, long suffering, on and on. Tells us what he heard. The proclaiming is preaching. And we should learn about this that preaching should be about God. That's really what preaching is all about. And if it's for anything else, I say it's absolutely worthless and be thrown in the trash. If it's not about God, it's not about Christ, It's not about you know. if it's not about Christ, then what good is it, right? All about who He is. It's about Him. This whole Bible. Everything here is all about Him. There are certain stories and certain things that seem to get off the matter, but they're not. They're just going to show how God plays a part in that and how He is the remedy for it all. But whatever we preach about, it is to always be God-centered. And so how sad it is today when we see man-centered messages that continue to dominate in the preaching of our time. And that's why the church is where it's at today. I think that's why our nation is at where it's at. It's not God-centered. And as you can see, there are very few people that really want to hear that message. Staggering to me sometimes. People can fill up the pews and and listen to a sermonette, 20 minutes, 15 minutes maybe, tops, and that's what's going to get them through the week. And it wasn't anything about how great God is, it was how they can meet their felt needs emotionally and such. That's sad, isn't it? And that's what people are flocking to. Well, we have the message. Let's get it to them. When God appeared before Moses, it was a message about Himself. And this is what the Israelites desperately need to know. We need to know it. We have a need. We have a need every day. That need is knowing God. Knowing Christ. That's what our needs are. We have a lot of other things. They're important, but... It all starts with God. God says, what you need to know about me is what I'm doing here. This is what you need to know. I'm merciful. We need to know God, don't we? We need to know our God. We may think, well, we already know about all those attributes.' Oh, we forget. And there's a lot of things we don't know. (laughs) Are <laughs> more things that we don't know I can guarantee you that we do know there's an eternity out there that we're going to continue to be uh, looking at ok now this passage where it says merciful and gracious long suffering abounding in goodness and truth keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. This is seen, or some of this is seen throughout the Old Testament. The Jews, the Hebrew people, knew this passage because whenever it was written in later times, it was borrowed from this. I mean, this is stamped into their minds about who God is. Let's look at some of those. If we, if we turn back to um, 33.19, God has already said that. I'll make all my goodness pass for you and I'll proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I'll be gracious and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. Their two attributes are what? Mercy and grace. Right? Mercy and grace. Now, let's go to Numbers And in Numbers chapter 33, verse 19. No, no, no. Chapter 14, verse 18. Time to get my glasses checked. (laughs) Okay. My eyes checked. Here we go. The Lord is long suffering and abundant in mercy. Does that sound familiar? Forgiving iniquity and transgression. But he by no means clears the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children of the third and fourth generation. Sound familiar? This is Moses writing this again in the next book, Numbers. Let's go to Deuteronomy. Again, this is Moses. I think Moses remembered this... <laughs> Of course, he's inspired by God's Spirit, but uh, he definitely didn't forget this scene with God's glory being present and hearing this message. Deuteronomy 4.31 For the Lord your God is a merciful God. There's mercy. He will not forsake you nor destroy you, nor forget the covenant of your fathers which He swore to them. There He says, merciful. Merciful. God is a merciful God. Let's go to Nehemiah chapter nine, verse 17. Now this is much later on in, in the history of Israel. We're talking let's jump a thousand years later or somewhere in that. Nehemiah 9:17, and reminding the people who have come back to rebuild Jerusalem and, and the temple. And he's reciting what had happened with Israel. He says, They refused to obey, and they were not mindful of your wonders that you did among them. Remember those. Eh, They weren't mindful of that. But they hardened their necks, and in their rebellion, they appointed a leader to return to their bondage. But you are God. Look at this. Ready to pardon. Gracious. And merciful. Slow to anger. Abundant in kindness. And did not forsake them. A lot of those same attributes there, right? Mercy, grace, patient, kind, not forsaking. But you are God. That little word, but, right there. but But... Like in Ephesians chapter 2, you have the first three verses that tell them how sinful man is, how sinful we are. And then God, in verse 4, says, but God, but God, being rich in mercy. This is what we're here today for. To receive God's Word about His graciousness and His mercy. His patience. Mm. Psalm 86.5 Our whole life is based upon who He is. Look at this. This is David. For you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive and abundant in mercy to all those who call upon you. do you like that? You're a good God. You're ready to forgive. You just can't wait to forgive. You're so abundant in mercy. never runs out. Verse 15. But you, O Lord, are a God full of compassion. Never runs out. And gracious. Look at this. Long-suffering and abundant in mercy and truth. Does those sound familiar? Again, it sounds like our text in Exodus, doesn't it? I think these people knew about that. We we've seen Moses write about it later. We've seen Nehemiah write about it. Here we see David, the psalm writer, write about those. Let's go to a prophet, Joel. In chapter 2 verse 13. So render your heart. This is a call to repentance here. He's saying, turn to me. So render your heart. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness. And He relents from doing harm. He He puts up with it so long then He pronounces that He will judge them. But He gives them time to repent and He would love to embrace them with forgiveness. He calls them to come to Him. Turn to Him uh, with all their heart. What a great God. How about the book of Jonah? Oh, Jonah. Jonah, who really wasn't necessarily a professional prophet... But he knew about God. He knew so much about God that he didn't want Him to be gracious. Because he knew He was a gracious God. And in Jonah chapter 4, verse 2, so he prayed to the Lord and said, Ah, Yahweh, was not this what I said when I was still in my country? I knew this would happen. I said this. Therefore, I fled previously to Tarshish. For I know that you are a gracious And merciful God, what is it? Slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness. Do those sound familiar? One who relents from doing harm. He knows his grace, he knows his mercy, he knows he will forgive. Isn't that great to know that much about God? The focus here is on God's mercy. God's grace. We focus on that a lot, don't we? And you know why? Because we'll forget. Because we try to do things ourselves to please Him. And so He's able to put these attributes on display with the backdrop of the nation's sin. There, His full glory comes out whenever sin has been exposed. You want to know something? Why do we have chapters like Ephesians two, the first three verses, or Romans, the first three chapters, and on and on throughout the Bible that tells us how bad we are. We need to know really, how bad we really are. For when we see how bad we are, we will see how great God is and His glory. And when we see how great His glory is, you know what we see again? We see how sinful we are. And then we see how sinful, even more sinful than we saw before, we see the great glory and grace of God even brighter. And when we see that even more brighter, what do we see again? We see our sin. It just keeps going back and forth. Now, that is amazing that God would still be offering grace. The more we know how sinful sin is, the more we understand grace. We understand that there is nothing in me that I can supply to God to make Him happy about me. I said me, in me, in myself. In Christ, yes. But in me, that's the point. And so when you realize that, matter of fact, when you confess it, you know what? Your guilt is gone. You don't have to hang on to that guilt anymore because it's taken care of. You've confessed it. You've seen a holy God, a gracious God. Lord, I confess. I repent of this. I don't want to do this anymore because it's a it's an offense to Your Holiness. Are we always in need of that message? Yeah. He wants them to know He is more gracious than they could ever imagine. We have never got up to the top of what His grace really is. We can't imagine how abundant and awesome and tremendous and amazing it really is. We sing the song. Isn't it amazing that unbelievers sing that great anthem amazing grace? Have you seen unbelievers sing that in this country? It's one of the most popular songs in in all of our nation. And everybody knows the words to it. And people can get together. even I've seen where drunks have gotten together and sang Amazing Grace. I don't think they had a clue what they were singing about. But they were singing it. Oh. You know, it was absolutely impossible for Israel to base their redemption on themselves. And that's what God wanted them to realize. It was outside of themselves. It's based on His characteristics, His grace. They had been unfaithful. They didn't deserve anything. There is nothing in us that can compel God to redeem us. Nothing in us and ourselves. In fact, All there is in us before Christ is that we would repel Him. (laughs) What a stench. But He manifests His grace. He deliberately chooses to be gracious to whom He desires to be gracious to. Ah, that's awesome. I don't know how else to say it. He didn't respond because Israel acted. I mean, there is a sense, yes, there is repentance there. And that is part of it. But He's the one that showed them that they were sinful. Otherwise, they would have kept on doing what they were doing. Why do the pagans keep doing what they're doing? Why do they keep worshiping different gods? Why do people worship themselves? Why do they keep on doing that? Do they do it because they think it's bad? No, not at all. They think it's good. They think this is is the right way. Totally backwards. But until God reveals that to them, they're not going to know. He didn't respond because Israel acted. But He is compassionate. He is gracious. That's the foundation it all comes from. There is nothing in our hands we can bring to the Lord. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, that's kind of an idea of what's happening here in Exodus. Let's look at this Mercy for a moment. Let's look at the glory of God here. There's nothing we can put up on the screen. There's nothing we can see with our eyes. What a picture this was. In the Hebrew, uh, merciful uh, means something like where uh, it's an understanding of a mother toward her child. She shows mercy toward her child. The pagan gods were thought of as hostile by the people. See, they were not known as merciful. God is, we are helpless, aren't we? And a mother tends to her child because she really loves that child. That little child, that infant, is totally helpless, can't do anything. Uh, there's, a, there's a father image in here, uh, the Hebrew people also saw. It's a tender compassion a father has for his children. And we can go to Psalm 103 and get a little verse of that. 103.13 As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. He pities a father; pities his children, and the Lord pities us, and He gives us mercy. Those who fear Him. It's put first. This mercy is the Lord. Pass and proclaim the, the Lord. The Lord God merciful, and He says gracious. Merciful is is put in the first wheel in all the instances of God's good will a fallen man fallen man whose misery makes him an object of pity so it starts here with his mercy as he looks upon us takes pity upon us he extends his mercy the gracious, you think of the good Samaritan story, everybody knows about the good Samaritan he showed kindness he not only took care of that man but uh, brought him to the inn paid money to the innkeeper and whatever else it takes uh, you you, know, you charge me you put it on my account uh, he showed kindness to one who had no claim on him at all that that man who had been uh, robbed and beaten uh, he couldn't put a claim on this man that helped him out there he says I deserve it you've got to take care of me He wasn't even in that position to do that. Romans 5, verse 8. But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were still sinners in a terrible muck and and water, Christ died for us. That saved us from the wrath, didn't it? God shows His love that uh, even while we were sinners. That's when that. He speaks of uh, this. Speaks of kindness. This graciousness does not only does God have a compassion or mercy to His creatures, but He does good to them. That's the idea in the Hebrew on this graciousness. He not only has compassion and takes pity, but He does good to them from His own good will. Do you remember verse 19? I will make all my goodness pass before you. Are you getting a glimpse of God's goodness? It wasn't from anything in them. But it was from... Him. This is called free grace. The reason He brought Israel out in the first place was because He was gracious. And... This calls for us to, to be that way too. Go to 1 Peter 3 Peter started learning the idea of what grace is about. You guys learning about grace? If you have an eternity to learn about grace. We should be learning it now. Peter, in the first seven verses, talks about family, uh, husbands and, and, and wives, and how they're to act uh, with each other. And then in verse 8, he says, Finally, all of you, be of one mind. Church, that's, that's what he's talking about. Be of one mind, having compassion for one another. Love as brothers, be tender hearted, be courteous. Not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing. Knowing that you were called to this. This is what you're called to. That you may inherit a blessing. He has an Old Testament quote. So Peter has a calling to the blessing that's coming upon them and that how they are to do. They're to have the compassion. They're to have the love. They're to have the grace. Because the Holy Spirit lives in us. We're commanded there. We have no option. And if we think we have options, maybe we better consider, uh, are we really His? because we should desire more and more to show this kind of love that goes beyond any kind of love we can we've heard of in the world that's the kind of love that God had merciful and gracious the next one's long suffering god takes a long time to react to human sin aren't you glad he takes a long time to react <laughs> because he did that for every one of us Some of us became Christians early in our lives. Others became Christians later in our lives. Whatever it was, He took a long time to react because we were sinful. We were sinful from the very moment we were born. (laughs) That was our nature. Of course, we acted upon that and showed that and manifested it what we were. But God is slow to anger. He delays the execution of His justice as He desires to be gracious. And so when He says that to Moses, He's saying here, I could have blown him out, but I'm not doing it. I'm, gonna, I, I'm taking time here. He waits to be gracious and He lengthens out the offer of grace. We don't know who's going to be saved out there. People who are lost, just most of the world, You know, we have a message to give to them. We all should give the offer of grace. You know, we we don't want to be um, extreme in our way of of uh, thinking. Well, God's going to save, so therefore I don't have to do anything. And the thing is, He's called us to preach this message, hasn't He? That's what Jesus said. He gave the great commission, and so therefore we have no choice. We are to do that. And we're to tell about their offense to a holy God. And then also offer them, well, here's God's grace though. Here's where you really are at, but here's God. And uh, so that message has not ever changed. God is so patient with His people. How about His believers? Is He patient with us? Even as Christians? Yeah. Really patient, isn't He? Oh, then uh, goodness. Merciful, gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness. Of course, He already said in verse 19, I'll make all my goodness pass before you. I'm going to make all my whole well-being that I am. And then you get to this word goodness. It's, it's above our whole, whole way of understanding and expressing this goodness. It's What is it? It's abounding in goodness. That's, what kind of love is this? It's not like anything that you've ever experienced in this world, is it? Truth. Goodness and truth. It's kind of meaning the idea uh, faithful, trustworthy. It emphasizes his reliability, his faithfulness, his trustworthiness. That's the idea of the word truth here, if you have that. He abounds in this truth. Of course, he is truth. We know that. But he's a trustworthy person and he can be relied upon when he is always speaking in his word. He tells the truth, doesn't he? And he can be relied upon. The next phrase is keeping mercy for thousands. That can be thousands of generations. Not just thousands of people. His mercy is never exhausted, is the idea. Keeping mercy for thousands. It never runs out. And He says, oh, ooh, that's it. My mercy has gone. Mercy is... Matter of fact, when you look at, even at, the, at the, the, the judgments, and even all the way up through Revelation, you keep seeing God's grace in judgment. He's warning people all the way up to the time. Look at the Old Testament. What did He do to Israel? He kept giving them maybe hundreds of years of warnings. But His mercy is never exhausted. He, is a, he has a pardoning mercy and He is a covenant God and to whom He has given mercy, He will keep giving that. What a promise, huh? The next one. Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. What a pardoning mercy. Divine grace is just magnified here. Does forgiveness mean to just overlook what has happened? Act like it didn't see it? God says, Oh, I'm not going to look at this. I didn't see it. Right? That doesn't mean to overlook sin. But because of his other attributes. And because of what Christ did at the cross, He counts the sins to the ones who He has chosen to be paid for. You're forgiven. If He forgives everybody, then it's a universal salvation and all will go into heaven. I don't know about you, but I wouldn't want to spend the rest of eternity with people who hate God. But yet they're all forgiven, right? Right? He forgives the ones who have repented and confessed faith in Him. With again, all His grace as the basis. It points to the cross, doesn't it? It points to the cross where the sin is taken care of. it's interesting, you have those words forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. They're all words about sin. And in the Hebrew, you see so often, I think we mentioned this in, in our Ephesian study, but so often you'll see those words put together. Transgression, sin, iniquity, coming short of the glory of God, um, the iniquity, which is um, just uh, just terrible wickedness and uh, polluted, corrupted. and transgression is deliberately disobeying God, crossing over the line. You put all those words together, and that kind of culminates with our thought of sin there from the Hebrew. But this is all about the cross. The the terms listed here, I I think, it's offenses of all sorts, but He forgives all of them. Right? Now, it's interesting, after He has given all of this, mercy, grace, long-suffering, goodness, truth, keeping that mercy, forgiving the sin, then He still proclaims His holiness and His justice. Because some would say, well, then that means... That everybody will eventually be forgiven anyway and we'll all go to heaven. And we know better than that. But even though God is gracious, He's merciful, He is a just God. He's a good God, He's faithful, but yet He is righteous and just, isn't He? He's very patient, but He still has. Aren't you glad He is a righteous and just God? And this is where a lot of people do not like. The wrath of God. And they will just do away with it in their mind and say, that's not the kind of God that I have. And they'll say, my God is gracious and He's merciful and He's patient and He's good and He's faithful and He's forgiving. He's all love. Yeah, but... And that's what's happening here. um, By no means clearing the guilty. So He'll not clear the guilty uh, without justice being satisfied. If you're a believer, justice was satisfied at the cross. If one doesn't trust in the work of the cross, then God is not satisfied with the, with the payment. Because <coughs> their payment is their own selves. can't ever satisfy God. It's interesting that third and fourth generation, we've seen that before. Way back in the ch- uh, chapter of the Ten Commandments, in chapter 20, and in verse 5, looks really familiar here, Verse 5, he says, You shall not bow down to them nor serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. So that sounds something like what he's saying here, which it, it should, but there might be some differences. But idolatry requires the penalty to extend to the third and fourth generation. What does this mean? Does that mean there's a generational curse? And that means whoever's in that family, no matter what, um, they're all bound to that curse and they'll all go to hell. Uh, I don't think that's what it's saying here. But it is saying that's how much sin has an impact on many people. Uh, It can extend not only to your children, but their children and then their children. Uh, God has to judge sin, but it's countered against those who rebel. Just because you're in that family, though, doesn't necessarily mean that that's going to happen to you and you have no opportunity, right, in in, in a sense. But it's on the guilty people is what is coming here. The, The consequences can be the effect on people of other generations. Let's say you ever thrown a rock into the water and you've seen that rippling effect. You know, there's the rock, and it, and it goes for a little bit longer, that, that rippling effect. God is gracious and merciful, but He doesn't necessarily prevent natural consequences to happen. You can become a believer and still have the consequences of your former past sins. Or you can be a believer and sin now and still have consequences that come. Uh, but let's, let's say a man who is a drunkard, who then becomes a believer, he's forgiven, and he's delivered from his, uh, all of his addictions, and drugs, and just everything else. You know, there's just tons of them. But there's still children in that family. And that they have been affected. And they may not necessarily recognize this forgiveness. At least at first. They're affected. They could be affected for the rest of their lives, right? Because of what their father had done. Or how about one who abuses their children? Let's say, let's take a mother who who's done child abuse. And then she becomes a Christian. She still has children who may deal with this abuse differently. Maybe they don't want anything to do with this Christianity because they can't believe it because of, look what's happened to me. If that's the kind of God that you have, I don't want Him because you have messed me up for my life, right? So the consequences can extend on. And as they teach their children, they're going to teach uh, uh, not the things of God and the grace of God. But the consequences are there. They can be far-reaching. Now, what God does, what He does do, I think, is very gracious because He limits the effect of sin to three or four generations. Think about it," he says. "To the third and fourth generation, it can it can extend out that far. What what your lifestyle is is going to affect other people in your family. And you look down through history, and you'll see that you know as as they raise their children, they raise them up to be um, just whatever, totally against God. But he had limits it. He, he could have taken it to the twentieth and twenty fifth generation, the thousandth generation, right?" to the third or the fourth generation. The ripple effects extend, but not too far. And God, by His grace, can come in and still say who He's going to save, but God will slow those ripple effects down and eventually stop them. He can do that too, can't He? So His mercy goes to Thousands of generation, and his wrath can go to the third or fourth generation. His mercy goes way beyond. Right, but here's what we want to think about: before we ever take advantage of his mercy, and I'm going way beyond. Oh, God is a merciful God. God will forgive. I'll do this sin if he calls it a sin and he still has mercy and he's bound to practice mercy and grace on me. Ooh. (laughs) No, no, no. That is not what we're talking about, right? We need to think, though, of how sin can affect other people around us. Starting with the closest people. A family. And then out to their family. If it be grown up kids. It can extend to the people you work with. It extends to the people in the church. It extends to your neighbors all around you. How many people can be affected by somebody's action of disobedience? That's what people need to think about when they seriously think about doing something away from God. Uh, how much effect can it have? into the third or fourth generation. That's enough right there, isn't it? Boy, it affects a lot of people. That's why we really need to proclaim His holiness and justice while we're proclaiming His mercy and grace. Because He's all of those. He does all of those. He does those. Because that's the God we know. Aren't you glad He has that character? Now, verses 8 and 9, and we'll close this out here. This is Moses' response. So Moses made haste and bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. Then he said, If now I have found grace in your sight, O Lord, let my Lord, I pray, go among us even though we are stiff-necked people (laughs) and pardon our iniquity and our sin. Take us as your inheritance. Moses immediately fell on his face. He saw the character of God. He saw the glory of God visibly but even more, he was preached by God Himself. He heard the Word of God. He knew the sin of the people. He knew His own sin. And when we see our sin, and we see how bad it is, we see the greatness of God's grace. We should bow down. Whatever it takes. We see that, and we see, again, like I say, it starts that cycle. How bad we are, but how good God is. Amazing this grace is. Now, he gives an affectionate prayer here. If now I have found grace in your sight, O Lord, which He has. <laughs> he saw His glory. Glory and grace. Let my Lord, I pray, go amongst. I mean, that's what Moses is so consumed with. God has already said He's going to. But He prays the prayer that He knows is right. And you can't get wrong. You can't be wrong when you pray the prayer that you know that God has already said that He's about and what He wants. You can't ever be wrong with that prayer, and so that's why biblical praying is the ultimate because you're going to pray with God with what you know what God wants and He desires. There's a lot of aspects behind prayer, but that's really where it can start. Uh, about about that, He wanted pr- the presence of God. Well, He's there. <laughs> Uh, did he need any more evidence? We're a stiff-necked people. Here he, he asked for pardons of sin. The pardoning of sin. He begged from God what God had already said his character was. Moses is grabbing a hold of the essentials of the faith, isn't he? He's gathering this in. He saw this. He heard it, and he knows that the purpose of Exodus is to be fulfilled. God is going to do what He says. And that they're going to be his special possession. And, and you get this, Moses says, we are a stiff-necked people. Moses didn't do what they did, but he still knows he's in with them. And he knows he's a sinner by nature. Moses identifies with the people. By the way, Scripture says he was the most humblest man on the earth. After he saw God and all this, he was humble. Yeah, He identifies with them. He included himself with them as being a sinner in the need of forgiveness. Even though he's a mediator, he knew that he needed to be forgiven too. God forgives sin and transgression. Back in 33 verse 7, It says, uh, Moses took his tent and pitched it outside the camp far from camp and called it the tabernacle of meeting and it came to pass that everyone who sought the Lord went out to the tabernacle of meeting which was outside the camp. And of course, he's kind of representing the people even there and as a representation of what was to come like a tabernacle but there he met with God and uh, he interceded for him there. He's interceding for the privileges and the blessings of the people. By the grace of God, Moses achieved his purposes. He'd been interceding. God promised to go with the people when He said that He wasn't. God showed a glimpse of His glory to Moses. God forgave Israel of their sins. Moses now can go down to the mountain whenever he's done with the commandments there return to the people with those second tablets and assure them that their sin is forgiven because you know what I think you have a lot of guilty people down there and they're wondering what's going to go on now what is going to happen Moses is going to come down there and give them the good news Have you just been given good news today through God's Word? This is where we're at. See, we're like Israel. But when you know that your sins have been taken away, you rest upon the promises of God and Christ. This is ultimately realized in God incarnate, Jesus Christ, isn't it? Show me your glory. Moses saw it. And even more, he heard it. After you have heard His word today, do you see His glory?